0: All right, we can turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14 this morning. We'll be looking at verses uh, 14 down through verse 20 today as we study God's end time harvest this morning. There is one theme that really is prevalent throughout much of the Bible, particularly uh, prophetic passages and it is this idea that God is going to separate good from evil at the end of the age and that is what we are seeing in Revelation chapter 14 uh, this morning in our passage and this can be something that can be kind of troubling to us and hopefully we come away with a better understanding of that uh, this morning. This book, the book of Revelation, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We could uh, find ourselves kind of getting lost in some of the details and think, well, wow, this book is really the revelation of the Antichrist and the false prophet and all of these terrible things that are going to happen in, uh, during this tribulation period. But really, the theme of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the one who is one day coming again, to this earth to establish his rule and reign and to make things right in this world. You don't have to look very far to see that we are living in a fallen world today. It is not the world that we see in Genesis 1.31 after God got done creating everything that is and proclaimed it all to be very good. We're a long way from a world It is very good. Just uh, look at the news if you need need a reminder of that. Well, the book of Revelation shows us when Jesus is going to come again and make things right. And part of that is a delineation between good and evil. And that's what we're seeing taking place here in Revelation chapter 14, which is a part of the seven-year Tribulation period, that's where we find ourselves in our study, all the way from Revelation 6-1 until Christ comes again. Revelation 19, ending in verse 21, is describing a future seven-year period of time that leads up to Christ coming again and establishing His kingdom. The Bible in the Old and New Testament makes very clear that before jesus rules and reigns or before god rules over his kingdom on this earth uh, there is going to be a time of great difficulty that happens uh, and then christ comes again the son comes again and establishes his kingdom on this earth that's what's known as premillennialism. that that it's very hard interpreting the Bible literally, in fact, if we interpret the Bible literally, it's impossible to come to any other conclusion than that Jesus comes again and establishes his kingdom on the earth. Well, uh, people who have known God have been very interested throughout time to understand, well, what's going to happen before that happens, before you come again and, and rule and reign on this earth? And That's the tribulation period. That's a large part of what is described in the book of Revelation. That's what Matthew 24 is all about. His disciples, Jesus' disciples, asked him, Well, what's going to happen in this world before you come again? Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, describes that. Revelation describes it in more detail. And within Revelation, the book of Revelation, there are some breaks in the action where we get an update about things that have happened, things that will happen in the future. That's where we find ourselves in Revelation 14. We're in our our second intermission, if you will. And in this chapter in particular, it very much looks forward to things that will happen at the end of the tribulation period. And we have seen uh, some of these things. If you'll remember, we saw the 144,000, these Jewish witnesses were on Mount Zion with Jesus uh, and celebrating the fact that, they're, that they've made it to the end uh, and they're going to live in the kingdom with the Lord. And then we saw this uh, angel who comes out and flies literally in the sky according to the words of the Bible that, a, that an angel will fly around the world proclaiming salvation in God to a world that, it, that is lost and destined for eternal separation from God. God miraculously sends an angel to them to try to get their attention. Hey, believe believe in me is essentially the message of the angel. And then last time we saw that there is going to be uh, a great punishment for those who refuse to believe. They, they stubbornly stay in their own, on their own path rather than accepting God's path. And there's going to be a penalty to pay for that. And according to Revelation 14, 11, it is eternal torment. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's what we looked at last time. But we also saw that there is a great blessing for believing in the Lord and persevering in spite of persecution. We looked at some of those details last time in God's perfect love and justice. And that brings us to this harvest that is going to take place in the end in verses 14 through uh, 20 of Revelation 14. We'll see one like a son of man, then we'll see a, a harvest of the earth and a harvest of the vine. Just up front before we even read the passage, there is some dispute among scholars, even good scholars, as to what exactly is being described here. Is this, uh, essentially, there are two depictions of a harvest. Is it describing the same harvest twice, or are there two two different uh, harvests that are taking place here? And well, uh, that will be our goal here to kind of come to a conclusion as to what is being described. Well, Revelation 14 and verse... 14. We'll just read through the whole passage. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out from the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out from the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God verse 20 and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles so clearly there is there is some kind of end time harvest here that is being described in this passage And as we mentioned before, the setting is important. This isn't something that is happening in the middle of the tribulation. And we know that because the rest of the chapter here is not describing events that are taking place in the middle of the tribulation. For example, the lamb in the beginning of verse 14, he doesn't come back to the earth and stand on Mount Zion in the middle of the tribulation. That happens at the end of the tribulation. This is one of these sections that's looking forward to events that are taking place at the end of the tribulation and uh some will say well see this is big. it's happening in the middle and this is the rapture. Uh that's why uh somebody like Gleason Archer is a theologian who believes in a mid-tribulation rapture well he kind of uh plugs in the rapture here At the end, or at the middle point of the tribulation, and says, Well, that's what's being described here the rapture of the church. Well, there's a problem with that. Uh, The wrath of God has already begun. That began way back in Revelation 6 and verse 1. Uh, You can see even the people of the earth recognize the wrath has come in Revelation 6. Uh, and so, and we as the church are not subject to God's wrath. First Thessalonians, uh, one 10 tells us that first Thessalonians five, nine tells us that the book of Romans tells us that there are a lot of places that tells us we're not subject to God's wrath, uh, which is what is being poured out on the earth. Furthermore, another thing that we've mentioned in the past, the, the word church, is mentioned an awful lot in the book of Revelation in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we haven't seen that word. Ekklesia is the Greek word. We haven't seen that word since chapter 3. In chapter 4, John is called up to heaven in an event that looks an awful lot like a rapture. He's immediately off the earth and in heaven. He's with Jesus Christ some things are revealed to him and then in chapter 6 we start seeing the tribulation period being described don't see that word church again until the very end of the book far after this tribulation period has ended so uh, in our in the narrative of the book of revelation we're about right here right in the middle Of the tribulation, but we're looking forward here to that time when Jesus comes again to the earth and establishes his kingdom upon the earth. And as we mentioned before, the Bible teaches that there's going to be a great separation before that kingdom period begins. After Jesus comes, then there will be a division, then the kingdom period begins after this tribulation period ends so that's the setting we're looking forward to the end of the tribulation period here in revelation 14 and that that really shouldn't be a problem for us to think that that's possible Uh, this whole book uh, the majority of this book is looking forward to the future so certainly uh, in the midst of looking forward to the future god is able to reveal things that are even further into the future, that really shouldn't be too hard for us to to believe that that could be true. So then, notice verse fourteen. Then I looked. That's an indication we have another kind of scene here. Behold, a white cloud, and one sitting on the cloud was like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So, question: Who is this person sitting? On the cloud, there's kind of two lines of thinking here. It's either an angel or it's Jesus Christ. I'm going to come down on the side that this is Jesus Christ uh, because of the language that is used to describe this person who is sitting on the cloud. Notice that it is a white cloud. Well, we see we've already seen in Revelation one seven uh, something that is very similar language. Uh, revelation one seven, not First John one seven. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation one one verse seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, Amen. There is no question that that Revelation one seven is describing Jesus Christ. Pictures him coming on a cloud. Matthew 13 and verse 26. I'm sorry. uh, Yeah, Mark 13, 26. And I've got the wrong verse on my sheet, so I'll have to turn there. Man, what did we ever do before computers? Mark 13, uh, 26 says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Daniel 7.13, even the Old Testament teaches that when the Son comes to the earth, He will come on the clouds. Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, notice this phrase, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days, God, the father and was presented before him and to him, God, the son was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So in the book of Daniel, we have a, One like a son of man coming on the clouds to rule and to reign. And and that's exactly what Jesus Christ is going to do. And notice also that he has a golden crown. He is going to come as a king. Psalm 2, 6. But as for me, God says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God the Son will come as a king when he comes again. He did not come as a king the first time he came to the earth, as evidenced by the fact that he is not ruling and reigning today. That's what he will do the second time he comes. Psalm 110 the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying rule in the midst of your enemies. We see Jesus coming as a king in Revelation 19. His eyes are a flame of fire, verse 12. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Verse 16, describing Jesus' second coming, Revelation 19:16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of kings. Lord, So this not only is this one like a son of man, language that Daniel used to describe God, the son, uh, it, not only is he one like a son of man, but he's also sitting on a cloud and he also has a golden crown, very much like a description of Jesus Christ. And that's who I believe is this one that we are having to deal with here in verse 14, then in verse 15, another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And this is where theologians will kind of dispute. Well, an angel certainly isn't going to tell Jesus when to come again. And uh, because after all, the angels are lower than Christ in God's scheme of things. So they certainly wouldn't tell Jesus what to do. And well, we have to remember what is the, the role of an angel. Angelos. We've seen that word in the book of Revelation before. Angelos itself is not a technical term. It doesn't mean the same thing every time we see it. We saw that in Revelation 2 and 3, if you'll remember, describing the pastors of these various seven churches that exist. It uses the term angelos because that term means messenger. That's what an angel is. That is the the role of an angel, is to be a messenger for God, essentially. Notice that he comes from the temple, even. The temple is... In heaven is the very home of God the Father. That's where he resides. That's why the people of Israel wanted to build a temple. And God gave them the plans for it to be kind of a copy of where God lives in heaven so that they could have a representation of that on the earth. And this angel is coming from the temple, the home of God the Father, to deliver a message to God the Son. Because after all, it would seem that God the Son, at least while he was on the earth, did not know the time when he would come again to establish his kingdom. Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone. So this would be an indication that this angel is acting as a messenger from God the Father to God the Son, that now is the time it 's not this isn 't something that uh, diminishes the deity of Christ in any way. he is voluntarily when he was on the earth, he voluntarily uh, gave up the glory that he had in heaven to live on the earth, and this is part of that glory that he voluntarily gave up. And here is, is a picture for us of God the Father delivering the message to God the Son. Now is the time for you to return to the earth and execute this great harvest that is to come. And it begins with a harvest of the earth. If you notice the language, there are, there are two different harvests that are mentioned here in this passage. The harvest of the earth and a harvest of the vine. Well, it begins in verse 16 with a harvest of the earth. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. This is very much in keeping with the idea that the elect are going to be gathered at the end. That's what we're seeing in verse 16, this idea of the elect of God being gathered from the earth. Now there is a, uh, the Greek term there is gi that is used for the earth. And a lot of times that can be uh, translated as land, and then land oftentimes refers to the nation of Israel, and that's probably reading in a little bit too much. We're taking too many too many steps there to get to oh, this is talking about just the Jews being gathered together, uh, because after all, that is exactly what uh, the Bible promises that in the end times, in the the very end, all of the Jewish people who are remaining upon the earth are going to be gathered to the land. We see that portrayed in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 27 and verse 12 says, In that day, speaking of the end, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing streams of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Jesus also spoke of this period of time in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, and verse 29 says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days... So, at the end of the tribulation period, Christ will come again. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So there certainly is a gathering of Jewish people at the end times uh, to the nation I think this, what we are reading about in Revelation 14, I think this gathering of Israel is a part of it, but I think there's also more that is being described here. It's not just a gathering of the Jewish people, but in fact, it's going to be a gathering of all of the righteous people in the world. Uh, and now some commentators will point to the, the fact that it says that this uh, this term for uh, ripe that we see there uh, in verse 15, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. They will point to that term that is there for ripe and say, well, that just means that it's dried up and it's not really good. Uh, it's 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 of no use anymore so it has to be reaped and cast into the fire is kind of the the language there or the the line of thinking that they're coming to the conclusion that this is too describing the same event twice but uh i scholars uh not to treat them too harshly they're not really uh known in many instances for their knowledge of kind of uh Doing work and that sort of thing. Uh, a harvest of the earth. What is being harvested from the earth? Well, in d- Israel, that's going to be something like grain. And what is grain? What is the state of grain when it is harvested from the earth? If you, you we can see it all around us, coming up here, you're already starting to see some signs in the fields that they're starting. The the plants are starting to yellow a little bit in some places. You can see it better from the air than you can from the ground at this point. But when October and November come, the the beans, the corn, the the wheat has already been harvested. When that was harvested, the wheat was very dry. And the corn will be very dry when it's harvested. These plants of the earth, uh, wheat and barley and these kinds of things that they would have been growing in this period, when they're ready to be harvested... They're dry. That means that it's ready, and that's what's being uh, described here. And the wheat is gathered into the barn. If from our scripture reading this morning, Matthew 13, and the dry is is uh, uh, and the tares are cast into the fire. That's what we are seeing here. Not the same thing being described twice, but a separation of good and evil is what we are seeing. And there are many, many examples of this throughout the Old Testament. All of the Tanakh I have up there on the screen describes every portion of the Old Testament Bible, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the Nevi'im or the uh, prophets and the Ketuvim, the writings, all three delineations of the Hebrew Bible describe an end time separation of good and evil. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 15 being one of those. Now this is uh, God's promise that he's going to bring the nation of Israel into the land at one point in the future. They will be brought into the land. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 1. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you. Notice that, oh, there's going to be some trouble for Israel before these things happen? Yes, there will be. And you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God, and you obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today. You and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. The book of Psalms promises this gathering. The might, Psalm 50, verse 1, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God has shown forth, may our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before Him, and it is very tempestuous around Him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The book of Isaiah promises this gathering in the end times. Isaiah 11 and verse 11. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The book of Zephaniah, also in the prophets, says, I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts they came From you, O Zion, the reproach of exile is a burden to them. Uh, Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the nations of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes. God promises that in the end he will gather people together, righteous people. He will gather them and they will be in his kingdom. you see many, many other uh, passages on there Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 11, 20, 34, 36, 37, 38, 39. Over and over, God is promising that he is going to gather the righteous into the kingdom uh at the end times and that is notice in verses 15 and 16 there's no description of judgment in those verses when this one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head sitting on the the cloud is is doing his reaping there's no there's no description of judgment in this uh portion of the passage Only a description of a gathering, a reaping at the end time, those who are ripe or ready to be gathered. There's also New Testament examples of Jesus coming in the end and that he will uh, have this gathering together and is going to make a separation in the end between good and evil and it began before his ministry even started in essence Matthew 3:12 John the Baptist speaking his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire a delineation there one reaping to the barn to be with God, the other to an unquenchable fire. Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50. We read that uh, in our scripture reading this morning, this parable of the dragnet being cast out at the end, gathered in the good fish separated uh, for good, the bad fish thrown away. Luke 17, verse 34, Jesus speaking, I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. This is not a description of the rapture of the church. This is a description of some being taken to live with the Lord and his kingdom forever and others dying, being left, uh, being taken in judgment. He makes that very clear there. Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. These people are going to be taken to the kingdom, gathered into the kingdom. Others will be excluded, and they will be for the vultures, essentially. They are going to die. So this idea of uh, people being gathered at the end and divided is very, very clearly taught throughout the scriptures. And that's what we're seeing here in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 22. Two very different aspects of the coming of the Lord. Yes, he's, he's coming once, and you can look at it in one of two ways, uh, because both are true. He is coming to gather his people into the kingdom, but he's also coming in judgment. And that's what we see in verses 17 uh, through verse 20, the harvest of the vine. Revelation 14 in verse 17, notice it says, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel the one who has power over fire came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, because the grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. So the harvest of the vine. Notice that there is another angel who comes out in verse 17. And then another angel. The first angel has the sharp sickle. Then another angel in verse 18. The one who has power over uh, fire comes out. So uh, we've already seen this angel once before. Revelation 8, verses 3 through 5, uh, we saw this, probably this same angel introduced. Revelation 8, 3 says, Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. That's a, a, an object that holds incense and fire, essentially much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. If you'll remember those prayers, were the the saints, the tribulation saints, praying that they would be avenged. And this angel, this particular angel, has the censer full of the incense, which are representative of the prayers of the saints. The smoke goes up before God, and he casts the censer to the earth. In other words, the picture is one that, yes, God is going to answer your prayers he is he is going to at the end of the tribulation period answer your prayers and the enemies of god and your enemies are going to be avenged and that is that when christ comes he doesn't comes again at the end of the tribulation to establish his kingdom not a picture of the rapture that's a different event that we've uh, discussed before, when he comes again to the earth, not in the clouds, and back to heaven, but to the earth to establish his kingdom, he is going to come in wrath, not, but he's also going to gather these people into his kingdom, but he's also coming in wrath to destroy the enemies of God in order to establish his kingdom Upon the Earth, now this is something christ's coming again or or uh, the Messiah's coming again. It may be referred to, in the Old Testament is something again that is throughout the Bible it's very very, very hard to interpret the Bible literally, consistently and not see that God the Son is coming to the earth again to establish his kingdom on the earth. those who hold to a view that, it, that that event is not going to happen are what are called millennial or no millennium. Boy, you have to spiritualize or reinterpret an awful lot of passages in the Bible to come to that conclusion that he's not coming here to this earth to rule and to reign upon it in a kingdom of his own making. We see that, of course, In the book of Revelation, that's uh, essentially how this tribulation period is going to end. We'll see when we get to Revelation 19, verse 11. John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You notice the, the similarity of the language there, this winepress of the fierce wrath of God being trodden. Well, that's exactly what it says there in verse 20, and the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the wine press, indicating the wrath of God that Jesus will come again with. Uh, this isn't just something taught in the book of Revelation. We saw this in our study of Second Thessalonians. And it is, it is only right for God to do this, Paul says in Thessalonians. For after all, 2 Thessalonians 1.6, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us uh, as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel, of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice a clear choice there. You don't have to undergo the wrath. If you will just obey or believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can be excluded from this wrath that is about to come upon the earth. And it's not just the New Testament, it's the Old Testament. Also, of course, teaches that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah is coming again in wrath. He did not do that the first time he came to the earth. He is doing that the second time he comes to the earth. Isaiah 63, 3. Uh, This is Jesus speaking, essentially, even though it's in the Old Testament. He says, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. If you remember from our reading in Revelation 19, it says in that passage that, he, that his garment, Jesus' garment will be uh, stained with blood. Well, that's from his wrath that's being poured out on the earth as we see here in Revelation or in Isaiah 63, their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. This is another uh concept that is really throughout uh the old testament also. It's not just a a New Testament teaching, it's not just a couple of verses, but there again you see an entire litany of verses that we won't take the time to read, but that Jesus is coming. Again, in his wrath, his very words said that that is going to take place in Luke 17. He described this in some detail for his apostles. Luke 17 uh, in verse 30. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Uh, In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah is a real event. Something happened there. Lot's wife turned around. She was turned to a pillar of salt. Don't do that. Don't be like she was. Run. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken. The other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is there also. The vultures will be gathered. These people, when Christ comes again, he is coming in wrath. A vast quantity of people are going to physically die and as a result of that physical death, they are going to be eternally separated from God. Not because God is mean. Not because He didn't give them every opportunity to turn to them. In fact, uh, He's sent sending angels at this period of time, literally in the sky, to warn them that this judgment is coming. Fear me, fear God, give him glory, understand your place before him, separated because of your sin from a holy God, and give him glory. Recognize him, submit before him, submit before his plan for the world, or you're going to be judged. There is an eternal consequence for that. And he is coming again. And when he comes again, it is going to be horrendous for the people who are left upon this earth in a state of unbelief. It's not, it's not a matter of whether or not they're perfectly keeping the law or their good is going to outweigh their bad at the end. It's whether or not they have trusted in Christ in his sacrifice for their sins, whether or not they are submitting to that or they're carrying on in stubbornness uh, pride whatever uh, the reason is that they are rejecting the salvation that comes from God and trying to do it their own way and these people are doing it their own way uh, up to a point we see in the book of Revelation that, that it's a, a, some kind of false religion that's coming into the world that the people are following after rather than trusting in God it's a, a religion of their own making. And then at the midpoint of the tribulation, kind of the mask comes off. That religion of our own making is really worshiping Satan. That's what Satan, as we talked about in Sunday school, tempted Eve with. It is do your own thing. Just You, you don't have to do it God's way. You can do it your own way. And that's essentially what every religion of the world is other than biblical Christianity. It's religion our way, kind of the Burger King religion. You can have it your own way or you can have it God's way. God's way leads to eternal life, bliss, separation from sin, life with God as it's meant to be for eternity. Doing it your own way ends in wrath poured out smoke, torment, no rest day or night life with God is eternal rest, rest from your works, rest from your worries, rest from the stress of life the way it's meant to be hell essentially separation from God is the pressures of this life times a billion, times infinity, infinite stresses of life Infinite darkness, infinite separation from God, infinite conscious torment, as we saw last week. And the choice is ours. Will we trust in Christ, or are we going to trust in ourselves? When he comes again, this uh, outflow of his wrath is going to be horrendous, as is described in verses 19 and 20, so the angel swung his sickle, ver- Revelation fourteen nineteen, to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Notice the, the second description describing wrath in, in great detail, unlike our first gathering that we saw verse 20 and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles the nasb says that, that it literally there is 6 1600 stadia uh or stadion or stadia, a stadion is approximately uh, 600 feet or so. So it comes out to, depending on the uh, (laughs) method that you use, it comes out to about 200 miles. And this is something that Joel describes in the book of Joel, uh, Revelation, or Joel chapter three and verse 12 Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Notice this isn't just a capricious judgment. This is God pouring out his wrath because their wickedness is great. Now I don't I don't think it's any kind of a coincidence here that there is a a distance that we see that's described 1,600 stadia or about 200 miles. And uncoincidentally enough, that is about the distance that goes from Megiddo or Armageddon, har we'll get to that, the mountain of Megiddo, down to a place called Petra, in the south or Basra, the, the Bible isn't perfectly clear where the Jewish people will go when they escape uh, at the midpoint of the tribulation. Jesus warns the Jewish people to escape out of Jerusalem, a literal place where Jewish people live, uh, <laughs> their city. Jesus tells them when they see the abomination of desolation that we talked about earlier, Revelation 13, uh, set up in the temple, you need to run, run for your life, flee. And uh, a lot of scholars make a big deal that it's going to be a place called Petra that's actually in Jordan, and that's entirely possible. It's a very easily defensible place, particularly in ancient times, uh, but the Bible doesn't specifically say, chapter and verse, this is, that they're going to Petra. It's, a, it's possible. It's a possibility. Maybe it's even a strong possibility that that's where they go. Nevertheless, the distance here from Armageddon or Megiddo, Mount Megiddo, is uh, close to 200 miles. See if I can get that to play again. Now you see this thing that pops up over here, Megiddo. There's going to be a picture here. That This is the place where a lot of the, the zealots or the holdouts in AD 70, when the Romans came, it was kind of their last stand. That's where a lot of them, uh, a lot of the Jewish holdouts died in Megiddo. Well, Megiddo is also going to be the place where this, where Jesus comes again and destroys the armies of the world that are coming against Israel. We'll see that in later in Revelation. Uh, Isaiah 63 says that he's going to go and gather the people. We read that earlier, gather the people out of Basra and his garments are going to be stained with blood. Well, this distance is, it's pretty close to 200. And notice Jerusalem a literal place. This says the wine press is trodden outside the city. Hard to come to any other conclusion other than outside the city means outside Jerusalem. Yes, in fact, it's going to happen up here at Armageddon or the mountain of Megiddo is what Armageddon means. And he's also going to uh, carry out some of his wrath at Wherever it is that the Jewish people go to hide themselves, Petra, Basra, uh, somewhere in the wilderness uh, uh, to the east of Israel, that's going to take place. And that distance is pretty close to 200 miles. Not coincidentally enough, I believe, in my mind. Now, uh, scholars, even good scholars, uh, Jade White, Pentecost for one, or I'm sorry, uh, John Wolverd for one, kind of thinks that, uh, well, this is uh, probably hyperbolic in nature. It's not necessarily describing a literal 200 miles. That's fine. Uh, I think it probably is (laughs) a 200-mile distance or something very close to that. Because the armies of the world, the people of the world, all the nations of the world are coming against Israel in the end times. And when the nation believes in him, he will come again and defeat the enemies of his people. Now, what's it going to take to make a river of blood that long? Uh, People have done the calculations. I didn't do the calculations. But if there were, say, oh, a billion people, in this army that comes against Israel, which is entirely possible. The population of the world at this point is about 8 billion. Uh, We've seen it's going to be pared down quite significantly before the end of the tribulation. Well, every person has six quarts of blood in their body. And if there were a billion people, it, the river would be 20 yards wide, four to five feet deep, and flow for 200 miles, coincidentally enough. So that's, that's what it would take to make a river of blood that is this long and as horrendous as that is to, to think about. That's what the Bible says is going to be the consequence of making the decision to reject God. God in the end times. And the consequence is uh, we don't get a, a an exemption because uh, even if we're an unbeliever, uh, well, I'm, I, what are the chances that I'll be alive at the end of the tribulation? So I don't have to worry about facing God's judgment. Well, the fact of the matter is that all people will face God's judgment at one time... Or another. And the good news is that God uh, promises to those who trust in Him, trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We are exempt from this wrath. We are exempt from eternal wrath. We are looked at as righteous in God's eyes because we're trusting in what Jesus did for us on our behalf. And we are exempt from death at the moment that we do that. It's not a process. It's not a lifelong process of being a good person. It is a one-time recognition that yes, my sin separates me from God. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm trusting in what he did. And Jesus promises us in John 5, 24, the moment that we believe, we pass from death into life. We are exempt from this horrendous wrath and given eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins. So the choice is, is really ours. God's word lays out the reality of the situation. You've got one of two options. You can trust in me and have life. You can do it your own way and have this wrath to look forward to. May he help us in our thinking to understand the importance of this decision and to trust in him. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the book of Revelation that so clearly reveals even the bad details of the future. We thank you for revealing to us the bad details. We don't want to be ignorant in our understanding of the future and what is in store for us. We need all of the details to make decision your word promises that in the end there will be a, a division between good and evil we thank you for providing a way for us to be seen as good through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and we thank you for the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit who leads us in the truth and I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to do that work in our lives. If if there is someone here who has never trusted in you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them to do that today and would not leave them alone. And your the ministry of the Holy Spirit doesn't end the moment we believe in you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to convict us as believers so that we would be conformed to your image, so that we would live in a way that is pleasing to to you. And I pray that he wouldn't leave us alone in that either. That if there are areas of our lives that need to be corrected, that that the Holy Spirit would convict us until we get them right with you so that we can be pleasing to you. We thank you for all that you have done for us. I pray that you would be with us in this week to come. And we just ask for your will to be done in our lives. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great day.